0: So I had started some new medication for something and the side effects were so bad I had to quit and all the side effects haven't gone away yet. One of the side effects is that my mouth tastes like cotton. I can't keep a, I can't, I've got dry mouth all the time. It makes it hard to talk. Notice that's not keeping me from talking, but it makes it hard. I made a mistake when I gave the information to Allie in the bulletin. It's not her mistake, it's mine. But we're in Romans 3 today instead of Romans 4. Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. This is God's word. Listen to it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, We uphold the law. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us, that you would show us yourself in your word, and that you would show us ourselves in your word, that we would take the word up and feed on it, and that it would be sweet in our mouths, and that we would enjoy communing with the living God through his word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, every year on the Sunday closest to October 31st, the Protestant Church marks the Protestant Reformation. It's Reformation Sunday, and usually Reformation Sunday and Reformation Day are two different days, but this year, October 31st, is a Sunday, and it's a great day. For it was on October 31st, 1517 that Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg in Germany. It was a, he was at a university there and it was the university chapel. And these 95 theses were 95 statements of argument questioning the theology and the practice of the Roman Catholic Church in Luther's day. And they were quickly taken and translated from Latin into German and reprinted without Luther's knowledge or even his permission. And they were distributed all over Germany because there was significant anger and significant discontent at the church in Luther's day. And there was a good reason for the discontent. The corruption was indeed massive. Now the Pope of that day was building what we know today as St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And it was a massive and a costly undertaking. It was begun in 1506, and it took 120 years to complete it. We Americans can't imagine a building project taking 120 years. We, we wouldn't be able to sustain public and financial support for a project lasting that long. And you can tell because you look at our buildings and you're like, yeah, that looks like it took about six months to put up most of the time. And we just don't build like they build. Uh, it, it was interesting when I lived in Southern Indiana, they were working on the I-69 project where they were gonna take uh, an interstate from Indianapolis through Louisville and on down to the south to join to another interstate and the first stretch of interstate that they built was in the middle of nowhere. And everybody went, why did they start there? And the answer was, they built the completely useless section first so that if the project was abandoned, then we would have wasted the money and then that would be an argument against not abandoning the project. So they had to manipulate the politicians and the public opinion by putting the first stretch of the highway to be useless, and then putting more stretches of useless highway, and then finally connecting all the useless stretches together into something useful so that nobody canceled the project. That's how we Americans think. And there was a basilica there before St. Peter's. It was called the Old St. Peter's Basilica. It was built by the Emperor Constantine, in about 360 A.D. over what was then called the Circus of Nero. And this spot was the spot, the site, where the first organized state-sponsored martyrdoms of Christians took place under Nero's reign in A.D. 65. And according to tradition, and there's really no good reason to doubt the tradition, According to tradition, the Apostle Peter was martyred there two years later in A.D. 67 by being crucified upside down. They were going to crucify him the regular way, and he said, no, I'm not worthy to go in the way that my master went. Please crucify me upside down. And Peter's body was buried nearby. And that building that that the Emperor Constantine built, the old St. Peter's, it lasted 1,200 years before needing to be torn down because of decay. Now, you think about that for a minute. Constantine spent 60 years building a church where people worshiped for 1,200 years, and then in Luther's time, it was torn down, and a 120-year-long construction project was begun to replace it, and that church still exists today, 500 years later, and it's beautiful. It boggles the mind. Someone said once that the difference between Americans and Europeans is that Europeans think 100 miles is a long way and Americans think 100 years is a long time. And it's just a different way of looking at things. Well, even 10 years into the project, the costs were significant and the cost overruns were substantial. And so the Pope decided that he needed to raise some more money. And he chose to do so through the sale of something called indulgences. Now, an indulgence was a piece of paper. It was a grant by the Pope to remit the punishment of a soul in purgatory. Now, we'll go into the Roman Catholic scheme of salvation in some detail in a few minutes, but for those of you who don't know, purgatory is supposedly the place where people who will eventually get to heaven one day go because their purity is still imperfect, And they have to have their remaining sin and their remaining guilt burned away. They have to suffer for it uh, because their forgiveness is incomplete. And it is frequently thought of as a place of purifying fire. Now, behind the idea of purgatory is the idea that the sinner must suffer somehow in order to satisfy God and gain forgiveness so that he or she can go to heaven. That is not biblical, of course. And Rome didn't even use the word purgatory until 1160 AD, and it didn't declare it to be official doctrine until 1260 AD. And so it was kind of a late thing that they created. Now, not only must the repentant sinner suffer to satisfy God, but also the living can suffer on behalf of the one in purgatory. And and they can shorten the time that the dead person spends there, supposedly. And here we get to this idea of indulgences, because an indulgence was a piece of paper from the Pope that said, if you buy this, you can get mom and dad out of purgatory immediately. Otherwise, they'll have to spend a couple of thousand years there burning and in agony before they're ready for heaven. And so if you make a sacrifice of your money, Or if you suffer by giving up what you could have bought with that money, like bread for your family or warm clothes for your children, then your loved one gets out of purgatory. Now, at this point, I want to ask Nancy to put up a slide that shows, the the first slide showing the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation. And the first is is a list of words that I need to explain to you. The, The Roman Catholic view of salvation, first of all, everybody, both Catholic and Protestant, recognizes that human beings are sinners from birth, they're separated from God, and they need something to happen in order to be put right with God. They need what is called justification. And in the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation, the instrument of justification, and what that means is the the thing that God uses to get the grace into your soul, it's a philosophical term. Uh, If a, a person is carving a statue the instrument of that work is the chisel. It's what actually does the work. So the instrument of justification in the Roman Catholic understanding is sacramental. Uh, Baptism initially saves you. And very often you'll hear phrases like, born again in baptism. That's what they believe. Not only that, you can lose your justification by committing a mortal sin. And if you commit a mortal sin, you then kill the grace in your soul and you need what the Council of Trent calls the second plank of justification for those who have made a shipwreck of their souls, and that is the sacrament of penance. That's what people are doing when they go into those little closets with the priest in the other little closet and say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been such and such many days since my last confession, and he hears your confession. That's a sacrament to them. And God uses that, according to them, to put grace back into your life. Now, if you die without getting your justification back, you go to hell. And if you die before you complete the things that the priest tells you to do perfectly, then you go to purgatory to work off the difference. Now, here's the key thing. You must, in the Roman Catholic understanding, you must actually be righteous before God can declare you righteous again. You have to possess what's called congruent merit because of the quality of your penance and and how sincere you are and how bad you feel. So there's another slide, a second slide that's got kind of like okay, this is what life looks like in the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation. You're born. And you're born as a sinner. And you're born deserving hell. Now if you die... Before you're baptized, you've got one, maybe two places to go. They're a little bit um, hinky on some things, but there was a, it has, the church has taught at various times. There's a place called Limbus Infantum or Limbo. You know, the limbo where you go under the, that's, that's where this comes from. And Limbus Infantum is not a place of punishment, but it is a place of separation from God. So, so some would say an infant that dies without being baptized goes to Limbo, and they just exist there forever, and it's not happy, and it's not sad, it's just kind of gray and kind of there, and you're just kind of existing, it's kind of like Youngstown in February, you know, it's just not that bad, but not that great either, you know, or maybe, maybe you go to hell. and. So that's why baptism and the baptism of babies is incredibly important to a Roman Catholic. That's why they they empower midwives, nurses, to to baptize a baby that's born that's going to die soon. They really believe if that child dies without being baptized, it could end up in hell. Okay, so you get the sacrament of baptism. And in the Roman Catholic understanding, that fills you with actual righteousness. It changes who you are on the inside. You're you're born again. And so you're on your way to heaven until you commit your first mortal sin. And a mortal sin is that which disrupts your fellowship and relationship with God and kills the grace in your soul. And the interesting thing is they will not publish a definitive list of mortal sins. They want to keep you off balance a little bit. And it kind of depends. This lie might not be a mortal sin. It might only be a venial sin. But this lie might be a mortal sin. And so you're always kind of like, where do I stand? And they, they want you to be that way. They're intentional about it. I'll show you a quote later as to why. So you've committed a mortal sin. You were on your way to heaven. You commit the mortal sin. Now you're on your way to hell. And if nothing happens, that's where you'll end up. If you don't do anything about it, you'll end up in hell for that mortal sin. So you recognize that you've committed a mortal sin. You go in to take advantage of the sacrament of penance. You go with the priest in the little closet, and you say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And you go through the thing that you've done, and you confess your sins. And he gives you an act of contrition and a prayer of penance that you have to say. And you go out, and you have to do the act of contrition perfectly, and you have to pray the the penance sincerely. I may have that backwards. I think the act of contrition is the prayer and the penance is the assignment. And if you do it, but you don't do it right, you don't do it all the way, then if you died, you're on your way to purgatory to burn off the remainder. But if you do it perfectly, then you're on your way back to heaven again. Okay, so I'm on my way back to heaven again. Oops, I committed another mortal sin. Now I'm on my way back to hell again. And then you have to do it over and over again. And so you spend your whole life in the Roman Catholic understanding, I'm on my way to heaven? Nope, I'm on my way to hell. I'm on my way to heaven? Nope, I'm on my way to hell. And you don't know where you are in that equation. You don't don't have any good way to judge if your penance was sincere enough, perfect enough, and it's a little bit scary. And Martin Luther took this, he was a monk by this time, he took this very seriously and he wore out his confessor with all the things that he'd done wrong. And his confessor was like, gosh, can't you just be like everybody else and pretend like this isn't that serious? And Luther was like, no, this is deadly serious. He, he actually damaged his body with extensive fasting and penance. Now, Now, let me just bring up one other thing. Part of the places where the Pope said he got the stuff, the merits, to put into the indulgences to sell to people was the Roman Catholic Church taught that there is a treasury of merit. And the treasury of merit was filled with the merits of saints and monks and nuns who were so holy that they not only generated enough righteousness to cover their own sins and get into heaven, they had more than enough to get into heaven. And they transferred that to the church for the Pope to use like a slush fund. And the church deposited it in this treasury of merit, so to speak. And these works were called works of supererogation. I'm so holy, I'm not only covering myself, I'm covering other people. I am super-holy. And we'll just take that extra merit that I don't need and you can give it to the Pope and he can sell it to other people. That was their system. That was their system. They have not changed their system. They emphasize, they de-emphasize but they have not changed their system. And the reason they can't change their system is they claim to be infallible. And if you change and say, whoops, we made a mistake, then you're no longer thought to be infallible and that destroys a lot of their credibility. So they're really kind of backed into a corner. They can't admit that they've made a mistake. And so they have to double down. Well, to a lot of people, this seemed like a bargain. I mean, all I got to do is buy a piece of paper and I can get granny out of purgatory? This is great. And so they were willing suckers for the Pope's con men. And one of the Pope's most able con men was a Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel. He was German, he was born in Germany, and he was a little bit older than Martin Luther, and he was a born salesman. And this guy had a little rhyme that he would use as a sales pitch, and he would say, every time a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. And Tetzel would go around, and he confidently proclaimed that these particular indulgences were so powerful that even if St. Peter himself were still the pope, you couldn't get a better indulgence from Peter himself. Tetzel reportedly said that his indulgences were so good that they could get you sprung for having sex with the Virgin Mary. These indulgences were so good that you could buy one for sins you hadn't even committed yet and bank it and then go ahead and commit that sin and then go, here God, I've got a piece of paper from the Pope that gets me out of the punishment for it. Well, while all of this was going on, Luther was doing his job teaching the Bible at the University in Wittenberg. And he was wrestling with the church's view of sin and grace and forgiveness and the place of the church and especially the place of the Pope in all of that. And his wrestling was crystallized around one little biblical phrase, and that phrase was the righteousness of. Of God the righteousness of God and he in, in Romans 1:17, it talks about the righteousness of God is from faith to faith and the, the just the righteous will live by faith and every time Luther read that phrase the righteousness of God he was taught and programmed to believe that it referred to that attribute of God by which he condemned sinners because he compared them to his own righteousness And Luther actually thought that the gospel was not good news, the gospel was bad news. And he thought that the gospel was bad news because it showed how the requirements for true righteousness were even deeper and even more profound than what the Old Testament law seemed to require. So in Luther's head, he's like, you know, the Old Testament prohibited murder and most people can not murder somebody, Can get through life without murdering somebody. But Jesus comes, And he says, no, anger is breaking the law against murder as well. The Old Testament law said, don't commit adultery. Most people could figure out how to avoid that one. But Jesus comes along and says, well, if you just look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so Jesus said it was just as bad, and Luther was just tormented by this. Listen to what he said. He said, For I hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the doctors I had been taught to understand philosophically in the sense of the formal or active righteousness by which God is just, and he punishes unrighteous sinners. Although I lived an irreproachable life as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God. Nor could I believe that I had pleased him by the satisfaction I could offer. In other words, doing his acts of penance. I did not have love. No, in fact, I hated this righteous God who punished sinners. And if not with silent blasphemy, then certainly with great murmuring, I was angry with God saying, As if it were not enough that miserable sinners should be eternally condemned by original sin, with all kinds of misfortunes laid upon them through the Old Testament law, and yet God adds sorrow to sorrow through the gospel, and even brings his righteousness and wrath to bear on us through it. And thus I drove myself mad with a desperate and disturbed conscience." persistently pounding upon Paul in this passage with a parched and burning desire to know what it could mean. As Luther studied and prayed and agonized over his own sins and struggled to understand the scriptures and to make sense out of the book of Romans, he was just miserable. One day, though, a light came on for him. Now, part of that light coming on for him had to do with reading the New Testament in the original Greek instead of the Latin translation that he had been studying. uh, Erasmus, the the great scholar Erasmus, had just published in 1516 the first Greek New Testament that Europe had seen in probably a thousand years. And so Luther taught himself Greek, and, and he snapped this up, and he was reading the New Testament in Greek. And, and he ran into an interesting issue. You see, the Bible that he was reading before, the Latin Vulgate, in, in the Latin, the word righteousness is justificare, from which we get our English word justification. And it's a compound word. Justi means righteous or just. And facere means to make. And so when the men read the Bible in Latin, and they came to that word, their minds instantly thought to be made righteous, to be justified is to be made righteous, or to become righteous. In other words, you had to become good enough in your own person for God to say, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied that you're sorry enough. I'm satisfied that you're sincere enough. I'm satisfied you're good enough to forgive and to recognize as a righteous person again, you merit restoration to the heavenly path. Now, the Catholic Church does not teach that a person could be so good that God owes them eternal life. Rather, she teaches that God graciously accepts the works that the repentant person offers as good enough. Now, that's the key. The person cooperates with the grace of God in their mind, offered in the sacraments in such a way that God says, I've been watching. You've worked hard enough. I think that it would be appropriate and fitting for me to forgive you for this sin now. And they would say that's an act of grace. And so salvation is by grace. It's by repentance and all these other sorts of things. But they're using a totally different dictionary than we are. Rome says that God graciously accepts your works and then accepts you, maybe, eventually, for the sake of your works. But you can never be sure where you stand with God. And even if you're okay with God now, you can never be sure whether you'll be in good standing with God tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. You are constantly flipping in and out of righteousness. And therefore, you are constantly flipping in and out of salvation as well. Now, Luther started wrestling with the Greek, and he noticed a huge difference in the Greek. The word for righteousness in Greek is dikaiosune, and it does not mean to make righteous. Rather, it means to declare righteous, or better yet, to count, or reckon, or credit with righteousness. Justificare in Latin implies that you've got to be a righteous person in your own self to be counted as righteous, and that's just a quirk of the language, The New Testament wasn't written in Latin. It was written in Greek. And the Greek says, someone in authority has declared you righteous, even though you aren't. So how in the world can a just, holy, truth-telling God declare a sinner to be righteous when he isn't righteous in his own person at all? And this is a major point at which the Catholics attack us. Here's this person, and you say God has justified him. We say, yep. Is he sinless? Is he perfect? Nope. Has he been doing acts of contrition and and works to, to make up for his sin? Nope. So he's still a sinner? Yep. Well, you just made God a liar. That's how they attack us on this. You made God a liar. He, he's not righteous at all. And you have God saying, you're righteous. How could God do that? And here, loved ones, is the spark that set the whole world ablaze with gospel light. The way a God is able to declare a sinner to be righteous, a sinner condemned as guilty under the moral law, is to credit or to account the righteousness of another one who has no sin, a substitute to the sinner's account. That righteousness that the Christian enjoys is an alien righteousness and that it came from outside. It's not his own. It, It comes from another realm. It is an external righteousness outside of ourselves. Now, turn to our scripture today, Romans 3.21, and let's read what Paul says about this righteousness. Because this was where Luther went and everything changed. Romans 3, verse 21, and we'll read 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It is a righteousness of God. Now, that doesn't mean it belongs to God, though it does belong to God. It means that it proceeds from God. In the same way, we would say this teaching is of God and this teaching is of the devil. The teaching that's good proceeds from God And the teaching that's bad proceeds from the devil. This righteousness of God, it proceeds from God. There is a righteousness of God, a righteousness coming from God as a gift, as a substitute righteousness. For my own ability is filthy and debased and sin-deadened, and my account is full of sin. And this righteousness comes from outside of me. It comes from God. And how do I get this righteousness applied to me? Is it through the church giving it to me in a sacrament? No. Verse 22. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So in the Roman Catholic understanding, the instrument of justification is sacrament. In our understanding, the instrument of justification is saving faith. You believe, and you are credited with righteousness. That's exactly what Abraham did all the way back in Genesis 22, isn't it? He believed God, and it was credited, it was accounted to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith alone. When I believe into Christ, literally believe into, When I receive and I rest on him, this righteousness from God is credited to my account. Even though I'm a sinner, it's given to me as a gift. I didn't earn it. I don't merit it. And this gift of righteousness comes to me from God because God himself, says Paul, put Jesus forward as a propitiation or a propitiatory bloody sacrifice. We find that a couple of verses later. What does that mean? Well, that word propitiation means an act that makes amends or reparations for guilt or wrongdoing. So God himself puts forward the blood of Jesus to please him so that his wrath is turned away and I can be accounted as righteous because Jesus himself was righteous and he's giving me his righteousness. He's crediting it to my account. And that is what it means to be saved. So I've got a couple of slides here that look like the Catholic slides, but they're for us. So what's the Protestant and Reformed view of justification? The instrument of justification is not sacramental, it's saving faith. Before you are justified, all sin is mortal. It will all kill you and send you to hell. After you are justified, no sin is mortal. This justification that God gives, you cannot lose. Not only that, there is no purgatory, there is no treasury of merits. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. And the righteousness that saves you and keeps you saved is Christ's, not your own. And it's credited to you, to your account, by God, who is the judge. So when we look at the Christian life and the Protestant understanding, the next slide, please, is, uh, it's real easy. You're born, you're on your way to hell. And then somewhere along the line, if you're going to end up in heaven, you have the new birth. You're born again. And you're justified by faith alone. And from then on, you're on your way to heaven. And that's it. That's the gospel. Now, can you not see that these are two totally different plans of salvation, They are two totally different descriptions of what God is doing and what God wants and what people are capable of doing. They're two totally different things. And they cannot be harmonized. They cannot both be right. And Rome knows that. And when we're educated enough, we know that too. That's why one of the most able arguers against the Reformation, a guy named Cardinal Robert Bellarmine said, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. You see, if you've been born again by grace through faith and then you give, you give a, a witness or, or testimony to that new birth because your life is slowly being changed to conform to Christ, you've tested yourself to see whether you're in the faith, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and, and you've passed the test, then you can rest assured that you're gonna go to heaven. You don't need to worry about it at all. But in the Roman Catholic understanding, it's the thing you've got to worry about all the time. You can never know that you'll be in a state of grace when you die. And so for the Roman Catholic, the idea that you can is horrible. They're afraid it's going to lead to you know, bad behavior and all kinds of license and everything else. Rome posits a salvation which is potentially yours. Provided you make every strenuous effort to use the sacraments of the church, but you can never be certain that you will remain in a state of grace, assurance is impossible. We offer an actual salvation, which is fully yours when you believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one can snatch you out of his hand. You can be saved and not realize you're saved or doubt that you're saved and not have a sense of assurance, but it's possible simply by the use of ordinary means and the tests that the scripture gives us to test yourself and to eventually know, yes, I'm saved. I have confidence that my salvation is secure. Rome says God will graciously accept your righteous deeds and will justify you. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says that all of our righteous deeds, all the things that we would offer to God the Father in exchange for being justified by him are filthy rags. Now the Hebrew there is very, very gross. It's very impolite. And I'm just going to tell you what it is, and you can put your hands in your ears or whatever. But the, the words in Hebrew refers to used tampons and maxi pads. Or cloth bandages that are soaked with pus and gangrenous fluids from a wound that is just disgustingly foul. And that's the picture of our righteous deeds. And we come with these disgusting things. God, this is my righteous deed. If I give this to you, would you give me salvation? And God's like, no, gross. Get out of here. Take that stuff out of here, that's vile. Rome says that's how you get saved again. Rome says, bring your works, your best works, and God will graciously accept them. We say, no, we must never, ever try to bring God good works, not for salvation. We don't bring our works to God and seek to be justified on account of them. Good works have an important place in the Christian life, an absolutely necessary place in the life of the Christian, but they are in no way, shape, or form to be brought to God as the basis for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And it is deadly to do so. Rather, we must come to God as humble, needy sinners and say, Father, I have no righteousness of my own. I've got no place to stand. I am only worthy of hell. Please, please, clothe me with the righteousness of Christ and let his blood appease your wrath towards me, a wrath that I so richly deserve. And on the same sure testimony of Scripture, God will do so. There is no need for purgatory. Christ has made full satisfaction for your sins. Now, there are some people that don't like it when I compare what one group believes to another group and declare the other group wrong. Tough, okay? But here's what I will say. Because I believe in a sovereign electing God who calls people to saving faith, I believe that it is not only entirely probable but almost certain that there are saved people in the Roman Catholic Church in spite of what their church teaches, in spite of it. But if Rome is right and I'm wrong, everyone in this room is headed to hell. And I get the hottest part for leading you astray. Rome has said in the Council of Trent, responding to Luther, anyone who believes in justification by faith alone is anathema. They are excluded from the people of God. They are going to hell. That's what Rome says about us. And we say, you've messed up the gospel royally, but there's probably still people among you who are going to heaven. So we're way nicer to them in the final analysis than they are to us if they believe their own doctrine, which frankly, I've known a lot of priests and a lot of them just don't. They don't take it that seriously at all. Luther called justification by faith alone the article upon which the church either stands or falls. In other words, if you remove this teaching from the church and the belief and acceptance of this teaching, your church falls apart. It's no longer a church anymore, very quickly. Calvin called this the hinge upon which all true religion turns. Part of the reason I like to celebrate Reformation Day every year is to put these things right in front of us and say, remember, understand, look, this is what God did. This is the gospel. And so many people have come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ because of the sacrifices of men and women who came before us. There's an old hymn that says, we bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. This is the heart of the gospel. And if you understand that, then you can see why little trite common evangelical things like salvation is, I asked Jesus into my heart. It's utterly meaningless. It doesn't say that anywhere in scripture. It's no, I have come to saving faith in Christ. I have been justified by grace through faith alone, and now I am being sanctified. That's what salvation is. That's what the Christian life is. Now, I'm just going to close with a quote by Luther where he talks in his biography, his autobiography about what happened when the lights came on. Listen to this. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. That's Romans 1:17. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found, found in other terms of an analogy as the work of God. That is what God does in us. The power of God with which he makes us wise. The strength of God. The salvation of God. The glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had hated the word righteousness of God before thus that place in Paul was truly for me the gates of paradise later I read Augustine's the spirit and the letter where contrary to hope I found that he too interpreted God's righteousness in a similar way as the righteousness with which God clothes us when he justifies us Although this was heretofore said imperfectly, and he did not explain all the things concerning imputation clearly, it nevertheless was pleasing that God's righteousness with which we are justified was taught. It has always been taught. There is a righteousness from God that comes to you as a gift through faith in Christ Jesus. And on the basis of faith, God justifies you and he declares you righteous and your salvation is secure. Let us never, ever forget it. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that you would bind these things upon our hearts, that you would burn them into our minds, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable us to hold on to them and believe them and to live as though they are true.